This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Cyril was the Patriarch of Alexandria from the years 412 to 444. He had a very long patriarchate in one of the most important and most highly visible sees of the Christian church. The previous Patriarch of Alexandria in the previous century had been Athanasius, perhaps the most famous person from the fourth century. So this is a long and distinguished history of patriarchs of Alexandria, and Cyril was standing in that line. He was one of the church's most prolific writers. He actually wrote about three times as much as Athanasius did. From his pen, to, we have still today about 10 large volumes, approximately that much from his pen. Cyril is famous for his controversial writings during the Nestorian controversy, but actually about 70% of what he wrote came before that controversy. And almost all of that 70% is biblical commentaries. Cyril is one of the most prolific commentators on the Bible in all of Christian history. Cyril is regarded as a saint in the Oriental Orthodox churches, the Eastern Orthodox church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, and the Anglican Church. That is to say, all of the Christian groups that acknowledge official saints regard Cyril of Alexandria as a saint. In Roman Catholicism, he was named a doctor of the church, the doctor of Christology in, in 1882. And he is considered by many people as the church's foremost Christological doctor. The way my supervisor put it, the late Lionel Wickham, was to say that the church's picture of Christ is the picture that Cyril of Alexandria persuaded them was the correct one. But I should emphasize that Cyril is not regarded as highly in all Christian circles. In the 19th and 20th century, Cyril has been a very controversial figure in much scholarship and especially in Protestant scholarship. So as we think about Cyril, the first thing we have to wrestle with is the fact that here's a person virtually universally lauded and respected as a great Christological thinker for most of Christian history. And then all of a sudden in the last 150 years or so, he's become extremely controversial. Uh, as a, a simple example of that controversy, the most widely used set of writings from the early church is called the Anti-Nicene Fathers and the Nicene and Post-Nicene Fathers, 38 volumes altogether. There's no volume in that series on Cyril of Alexandria. He's left out of it almost completely. In fact, completely left out of it. So why is somebody who was so widely praised and highly regarded now considered to be so controversial. Well, first of all, a lot of Christology today, especially in the West, is looking for particular terminology. The terminology that Chalcedon gave us, the Council of Chalcedon in the year 451, is terminology of one person, the Greek word there is hypostasis, one hypostasis, two Natrix, and the Greek word there is phusis. One hypostasis, 
and two fusets. Well, Cyril didn't use that terminology consistently. Most of the time, he spoke of one thesis in Christ. Sometimes he spoke of two thesis. In fact, sometimes in the same paragraph, he would speak of Christ as one thesis and two thesis. So modern scholars who are looking for Chalcedonian terminology and who tend to forget that Cyril lived before that terminology was standardized, look askance at Cyril. Why can't he get the words straight? As an example of that, the most famous expression from Cyril of Alexandria is the expression, one incarnate thesis of God, the Logos. Now, if you translate the word thesis as nature, that sounds heretical. One incarnate nature of God, the Logos. That isn't true. He has the divine nature and a human nature. So what's wrong with Cyril? Well, Cyril actually only uses that phrase eight times in a corpus of writings this thick. And what Cyril means by thesis is much more like what we would call person rather than nature. Nevertheless, the phrase has stuck and it has given Cyril a bad reputation among people who don't realize that he's not using the word thesis in the same way that Chalcedon will later do. So we tend to think Orthodox Christology involves saying one hypostasis or one person, two thesis, two natures. Cyril usually says one thesis, therefore we tend to look suspiciously as Cyril today. The other reason why Cyril is regarded suspiciously today is that he was the staunch opponent of Nestorius. 19th and 20th century scholars, many of them, although not all of them, have been insistent that Nestorius was treated unfairly, that his picture of Christ was actually plausible, that he was condemned for political reasons, not for theological ones. In other words, Nestorius has been dramatically rehabilitated after a millennium and a half of being considered a heretic. Many scholars today now consider him to be very acceptable. Naturally then, the person who labeled him as a heretic comes under suspicion himself, and that's Cyril of Alexandria. For what it's worth, I think the church was right in calling Nestorius a heretic. I think the modern scholars are wrong. I've said so in print, and I'll talk about that a little bit more as we go along this morning. But I want you to see that this is a person who was very highly praised for most of Christian history, but who has come under a great deal of suspicion in the last 150 years or so. So what are we to make of Cyril of Alexandria? What are we to make of this towering figure who is now relatively late in Christian history, so controversial. Let me give a little bit of a primer on how we can understand Cyril. First of all, we need to recognize that the word thesis in the early fifth century in the Greek-speaking church was not yet a technical term when it came to Christology. The word was used in a variety of different ways by different people. 
when I translate, I translate that word differently every time, time I see it, depending on how it is used in that context. The vast majority of standard editions of patristic writings, though, always translate the word nature. But we need to recognize that that word did not become a term meaning nature until the Council of Chalcedon. And only then in the Chalcedonian churches, what we today call Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and then later Protestant. It never became a term in the non-Chalcedonian churches, the churches that we today call Oriental Orthodox and the Church of the East. And in the fifth century, it was not a term. Recognize that words can be used in a variety of ways and they are used in a variety of ways until a group of people decides we will always use the word this way. That's when the word becomes a term and it becomes a term only for that group of people. To us, physis is a term, it means nature. That was not true in the early fifth century. And we need to recognize that not only when we read Cyril, but when we read anybody from that time period. Setting aside terminology, the supreme emphasis of Cyril of Alexandria and overwhelmingly his great contribution to Christology is on the person of the Son. You see, Christology, as the church has understood it on the basis of Scripture, is not simply about the fact that Christ is one person with two natures. That's true, but the church has always said much more than this. What the church says in addition is that the one person, Jesus Christ, the man who walked in Galilee and Jerusalem in the first century, is the same person who has always been the eternal son of God. Jesus is not somebody else separate from the Logos, the Word, the Son of God. He is the same person before and after the Incarnation. Before the Incarnation, he was merely the Logos. After the Incarnation, he is the Logos who is now also human. Before the Incarnation, he had the divine nature because he was the Son of God. After the Incarnation, he also has a human nature because that is what was united to his divine nature in the person of the Son of God. The crucial point that, is, that I think we need to recognize is that Jesus is the same person before and after the Incarnation. The Son of God is the one who became incarnate as the person that we now call Jesus. More than anybody else in Christian history, Cyril emphasized that point. I belabor this at the beginning because today it is common simply to speak of emphasizing unity and emphasizing duality. Now, those are important, of course. We need to emphasize the unity of Christ's person. We need to emphasize the distinction between the divine nature that he's always had and the human nature that he took upon himself. That is very important, but that doesn't go far enough. And Cyril is the one who put his finger on what else we need to say. We need to say 
that the person, the one person, is the same person, is always better. So this is the supreme emphasis of Cyril, and we'll see it in just a few minutes because I'm going to put some passages on the screen. And these passages, in fact, all come from prior to the Nestorian controversy. They all come from his writings before Nestorius came onto the scene. So first and foremost, Cyril has a supreme emphasis on the person of the Logos or the Son. Second thing to recognize to understand Cyril is that he emphasizes that our salvation depends on both the similarity between Christ and us and the difference between Christ and us. The similarity and the difference. First of all, the similarity. Cyril, like most people in the early church, uses the language of as God, as man. Everybody look at me for just a minute. Look at my hands, okay? A number of years ago, one of my students dubbed what I'm about to do as, quote, the hand motions, okay? This is living as God. This is living as man. For the first several centuries of Christian history, before they developed the terminology of two natures, they said the same thing by speaking of the Logos, living as God and as man. Before the incarnation, he lives only as God, doing divine things, creating the world, sustaining the world, etc. After the incarnation, the same person lives in two ways at one time. He lives as man, and he lives as God. Over and over again in Cyril's writings, as also in the writings of many other church fathers, we see the language of as God or as word on one hand, as man on the other hand. He is similar to us in that he is living as man, accomplishing our salvation as man. But he's also different from us in that he lives as God. Another way that Cyril emphasizes the difference between Christ and Christians is by using the phrase, son by nature, sons by grace. Only the son by nature, the eternal son, the Logos, can make us sons and daughters by grace. That's a crucially important distinction, and I'll come back to that a little bit later. The link between the Savior and the saved people of God and Cyril's understanding is participation. Like most of the church fathers, and especially the Eastern church fathers, Cyril speaks of human salvation with the Greek word theosis, which is somewhat misleadingly called deification, translated deification in English. It's normally talked about as divine participation. We participate in God. And in, in that participation comes our salvation. So what I would like to do this morning is to talk about Cyril's understanding of participation. Cyril speaks of participation in two major ways. Spiritual participation. We participate in God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And also physical participation. 
we participate in God physically, corporally, so to speak, through the life-giving body of Christ that we receive in the Eucharist. Let me give you a couple of brief examples of each of these. For the next several minutes, I'm going to be putting a lot of quotes from Cyril on the screen. I'm going to ask you to read them. I won't read them all myself, but I'll ask you to read them, paying attention to the words that I've highlighted in red in particular. Keep in mind that all of these quotes come from writings before the Nestorian controversy began. So this is an example of spiritual participation. This is from one of Cyril's festal letters. Early in each year, the Bishop of Alexandria wrote a festal letter to all of the Eastern churches, which enabled the churches to sync up when they were going to celebrate Easter and therefore when Lent was going to begin. So the Bishop of Alexandria was the one who wrote that letter and he used that to offer a bit of a homily on whatever was on his mind. So here's Cyril's festal letter for the year 416. Each of those who believe in Christ is made fully a temple of the Spirit in order that, as I said, he might receive the source of holiness. Now notice ver something very important here. For Cyril, salvation is not simply receiving something from God. It is receiving God himself. We don't just get holiness as a human quality. We receive the source of holiness, the Holy Spirit himself, who indwells us. Something I'd like you to try to remember as you think about Cyril. For Cyril, salvation is not primarily something. It is primarily someone. We don't receive just holiness. We receive the one who is himself the source of holiness, the Holy Spirit. Salvation is not primarily something. It is primarily someone. Now let's look at physical participation or corporal participation. This is from Cyril's commentary on John, the longest and most important of his biblical commentaries, which he wrote in about the year 425. For since the life-giving word of God dwelt in the flesh, he transformed it into his own proper good, that is life. And by the unspeakable character of this union coming wholly together with it, rendered it, that is, his body, life-giving, as he himself is by nature. And so he goes on to say that the body of Christ gives us life when we receive it through the Eucharist, because the body of Christ is life-giving. Why? Because it is the body of the Logos, who is himself the source of life. So participation in God, according to Cyril, is the heartbeat of salvation, and that participation is spiritual and physical. It takes place on two levels, so to speak. Now, let's talk a little bit more about participation and Cyril. If participation comes to us through the Holy Spirit, 
and through the Eucharist. What actually is it? What do we share when we participate in God? I would like to suggest that in Cyril's mind, there are four major aspects of our participation in God. We share in his incorruption. We share in his holiness. We share in his righteousness. And most important, we share in sonship or filiation. We become sons and daughters of God. So let me give you an example of each of these four kinds of participation in Cyril. Four different quotes coming up. This is also from the commentary on John, on the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17. He came among us and became man, not for his own sake, but rather he prepared the way through himself and in himself for human nature to escape death and return to its original incorruption. Cyril emphasizes that God created humanity within corruption or what we would call immortality at the beginning. But that immortality could be lost and was lost through the fall. In salvation, God restores us to immortality or incorruption. But recognize, incorruption does not belong to us. It is not our own inherent characteristic. It comes to us because we participate in the incorruptible one, in the logos, in the sun. Now, holiness. But now, since we are, I'm sorry, this is from a very early work on worship in spirit and truth, which Cyril wrote in the year 412, the very year he became the Bishop of Alexandria. This is, in a sense, a commentary on the Pentateuch. By the way, Cyril, more or less, wrote Bible commentaries in order from the beginning of the Bible all the way through the Bible until his attention was diverted by the Nestorian controversy. So this is the earliest one on the beginning of the Bible. Cyril writes, but now since we are among those who have been made holy in Christ, the great and true high priest to whom we have clung by the spirit, we have shown to be sharers and partakers of his own nature. Notice that our holiness does not belong to us. It is Christ's holiness. And when we have the Holy Spirit and cling to Christ through the Holy Spirit, we share in his holiness. We are partakers. We participate in his own nature. Now, righteousness. This is from his commentary on Romans. For the sun came down out of the heavens, dissolving the charges of the law against humanity, justifying the ungodly by faith, and as God transforming the nature of man into incorruption and raising it up to what it had been at first. So here we see an emphasis on both sharing in incorruption and sharing in righteousness. By the way, keep in mind that in Greek, the word righteousness and the word justification are the same word. So the word that I've translated justifying there could be translated making righteous as well. We share in righteousness. We share in holiness. We share in incorruption. 
But pay attention to what Cyril writes at the end of this passage. He is the protector and grantor of communion with God through sanctification, another word for holiness, and incorruption, and the righteousness that comes by faith. Okay, there again, we see incorruption, we see holiness, sanctification, we see righteousness. But there's another word here as well that Cyril associates with those, and that is the word communion. Please keep that word in your mind, and I'll come back to that in just a minute. Step back for a moment. We participate in God, in his incorruption, in his holiness in his righteousness. That participation is our salvation. But if we were to stop there, what question would we not be answering? Why does Cyril have this overwhelming emphasis on the sun and on sonship? If salvation were merely a matter of participation in incorruption, in righteousness, in holiness, as important as those are, why does Cyril overwhelmingly emphasize sonship and the fact that Christ has to be son by nature in order to make us sons and daughters by grace? You see, none of these things in and of themselves push Cyril toward that overwhelming emphasis on sonship. What does push him is the fact that at the most fundamental level, he believes that we share in the son's sonship to the father. Let's take a look at that aspect of participation. Cyril on sharing in divine sonship. What does that mean? Well, as well as I can tell, there are four basic things that you might mean when you speak of divine sonship. First is a generative relationship in which a son or could be a daughter is generated from the parents. Second is an identity of substance. When we beget or conceive and give birth, we propagate children who are like us in substance, not different from us. So you could speak of sonship in terms of an identity of substance. A third aspect of, aspect of sonship would be status. The son, the firstborn son, is the one who inherits the father's estate. A person who has the status of sonship has the legal rights of a son and the family. And then a fourth aspect of sonship is relationship, communion, an intimate personal relationship that at least in ideal cases should characterize a child's relationship to his or her parents, a son's relationship to his father. Now Cyril talks about all four of these and he emphasizes that the first two are not shared. And he also emphasizes that the third and the fourth are shared. God does not make us sons of God and daughters of God in the same way 
that the Son is Son. If you want to be technical, that isn't even possible. You can't become the eternal Son of God. If you aren't already, then you aren't ever going to be the eternal Son. You can't be the only begotten unless you already existed. God does not share that with human beings. Identity of substance is likewise not shared. The persons of the Trinity share the same substance or essence or nature. God does not share that with us, according to Sarah. But the status of sonship, the legal right, the birthright, so to speak, and the personal fellowship, the communion, he does fit. Again, let's look at some passages. From the commentary on John, this is a passage which makes it very clear that, according to Cyril, that God does not share the first two kinds of sonship with us. Shall we then abandon what we are by nature and mount up to the divine and unutterable essence? And shall we depose the word of God from his very sonship and sit in place of him with the Father and make the grace of him who honors us a pretext for impiety? May it never be. The same phrase that Paul is so fond of using in the New Testament. May it never be. No. The Son remains who he is, eternal, uncreated. We remain who we are, creatures, but instead we are adopted into sonship. So God does not share with us identity of substance. He does not share with us the kind of sonship that involves generation or begetting. We don't receive sonship or daughtership in those ways. Another passage from the Dialogues on the Trinity, written about four or early 420s. Everyone will confess that we were created, but that one came forth from the essence of God the Father. We are also conformed to him since we receive in place of the rank of generative birth the grace of his kindness. We are ranked as God's children. Notice the idea of legal status there. We are categorized, ranked as God's children and gain a dignity which is external and added from without. We are adopted sons, having been formed to the true son. We do not receive identity of substance, but we do receive the status of sons. A lot of commentators think that this is all Cyril means by sonship. We receive the status of sons. For many people who are interpreting the New Testament, they think that adoption is primarily a legal category. We gain a rank, a classification. We, put, we are put in the category of family member. But I would like to suggest that for Cyril, as for the Christian tradition more generally, Sonship involves more than just legal status. Adoption is more than just a legal category. Let me talk for a few minutes about a particular set of words that Cyril uses 
to get across the idea that sonship is more than just a legal category. Sonship involves communion. It involves relationship. It involves fellowship. Cyril uses a word, oikeotes, which means relationship or communion. This word is not used as a noun in the New Testament, but it is, it is used in other forms in the New Testament, but not in the noun form that I have written up here. Oikeotes, in Cyril's mind, can mean any kind of relationship or fellowship between family members, between believers, or between Christians and God. Then he uses another term, oikeotes physike, natural communion or natural fellowship. This is a very puzzling phrase, but I would like to suggest that what Cyril means by that is the communion between the persons of the Trinity on the basis of the fact that they share the same nature. Father, Son, and Spirit share the same nature, the divine nature. Because they share the divine nature, they have a particular kind of communion between them, an eternal communion, a communion of divine persons on the basis of the fact that they share the divine nature. Cyril calls that oikeotespusike, or natural communion. What is very, very striking about Cyril is that he uses oikeotespusike to refer not only to the communion that the persons of the Trinity have, but also to the communion between believers and God. In other words, God shares by grace with Christians the natural communion that he has with his Son and the Spirit on the basis of their being of the same nature. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. Cyril uses the phrase oikeotespusike eight times in the commentary on John and in the dialogues on the Trinity. Here's a passage that explains it. In that case, certainly the communion, the oikeotes, between the begotten one and the begetter, that is between the Son and the Father, must be not merely tenuous or illusory, but natural. Must it not? The relationship that they have isn't just any kind of communion. It is natural communion because they share the same nature. But commenting on John chapter 1, verse 13, Cyril writes, when he had said that authority was given to them from him who is by nature's son to become sons of God, he can continue by saying they were begotten of God in order that he might show the greatness of the grace which was conferred on them, gathering, as it were, into natural communion those who were alien from God the Father and raising up the slaves to the nobility of their Lord. God does not share his essence with us, but he does, according to Cyril, share with us the fellowship that he has with his son and his spirit on the basis of the fact that they share the same essence, the same nature. Cyril argues that God shares with us 
His natural communion is oike altes, BCK. Well, so what? I would like to suggest that for Cyril, this is the heart of Christian participation in God. The relational participation, the sharing of the natural communion is the basis for other aspects of participation. We become sons and daughters when we are united to the true son. Back to that phrase, son by nature, sons by grace. Only the son by nature can make us sons by grace. We are righteous when we are united to the righteous one. We are incorruptible when we are united to the incorruptible one. What does God share with us? Incorruption, righteousness, holiness, but most of all, sonship. And most particularly, he shares with us the relationship, the fellowship, the communion that he has with his own son and has had from all eternity. Participation is both already given and developed progressively. Now, let's turn our attention from relational participation back to Cyril's Christology. I said earlier, salvation is not primarily a thing. It is not something so much as it is someone. It is Christ's gift of himself to us by giving us a share in his own communion with the Father and the Spirit. Christ cannot give his own natural communion to us if he has out himself received it from another. He has to be the natural son who has shared eternally in that communion in order to be able to give himself to us and give us a share in that communion. He must be the eternal son of God made flesh or he cannot save us. The reason Cyril is so insistent on sonship is because his, his understanding of salvation is at heart focused on communion, not simply participation in God's quality, even though that is also very important. So what's wrong with Nestorius? Nestorius' problem was not simply that he overemphasized the duality in Christ. Nestorius' problem was that he saw Christ as a man indwelt by God the Son, not as God the Son living in two different ways at once. According to Cyril, Nestorius' Christ is a man indwelt by the Son, not the eternal Son of God incarnate himself. Therefore, according to Cyril, Nestorius' Christ cannot save us. Let me offer a few concluding thoughts. I need to be perfectly honest. Cyril did not provide the two phases terminology that has dominated Christology ever since Chalcedon. He was not the source of the formula one person, two natures that we so often use. But Cyril did articulate the fundamental truths that undergird all of Christian Christology. Salvation hinges on participation in God. The participation is both qualitative, participation in God's quality, and relational, participation in divine communion. 
Participation requires that the Son be just as fully God as the Father. And it also requires that the Son come down to full humanity and even to human death on the cross. He has to be God and he has to come all the way down to human life and human death. The Son who was any less than this or who did any less than this could not save and it is because of his articulation of these truths that Cyril is regarded as perhaps the greatest Christological thinker in Christian history. Thank you very much.